speaker today is award-winning astrophysicist Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith, who has also been named the Australian Government's first Women in STEM Ambassador. Based at the University of New South Wales, Lisa has spent 15 years conducting astrophysics research at universities and institutes around the world. Lisa is passionate about tackling the grand challenges facing Australia's STEM industry, which encompasses the disciplines of science, technology, engineering and maths. A key challenge includes reducing barriers to the equal participation of women in STEM. This IFE Grand Challenge Lecture was recorded on 6th of September 2019 at QUT's Gardens Point campus. We hope you enjoy this IFE podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been great. I've actually just had a meeting with some of the, the team here who are working on gender equity, um, not only in this, this faculty, but, but right across the university. So I hope some of you are interested in that. I hope all of you are interested in that. And I hope some of you are also interested in astrophysics because you're going to get about half and half. Um, so we're going to start with a bit of the astrophysics, a bit of the easy stuff, and then we go into the hard stuff that is social change and um, changing hearts and minds to a future where we don't have 16% of STEM qualified workers being female, um, that every young person who is interested and has a capability and a desire has the chance and opportunity to um, make their dreams come true and make a better world. And that's really what we're trying to build here. So what I'm showing you now is, is one of my little babies from my career. Um, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Telescope. So I want to start by talking a little bit about my astronomy journey and the grand challenges that face us as uh, STEM professionals and the, the grand challenges that face astrophysics and the interesting perspectives that I've had throughout my career. And then we'll go on to my current challenges. So this is a picture of me when I was 16 years old recognize the yeah and I'm pointing at something who can guess what I'm pointing at <laughs> Halley's Comet that's, that's a common guess it's nearly Halley's Comet but it's 10 years too late so who actually saw Halley's Comet in 1986 winners you're, you're, this is great but I didn't I didn't see it because I was six years old my dad and I went outside into the garden and we looked for Halley's Comet. But I grew up in England. And guess what? It was cloudy. <laughs> so I never saw Halley's Comet. But looking for Halley's Comet and going out with my dad in the garden and looking at the stars and asking questions why, asking why, was really part of my upbringing. I was born in a small place. I guess I grew up in... Uh, a rural area so a lot of my time as a kid was spent playing riding bikes climbing up trees and you know walking around the countryside and and looking at how the seasons changed and how nature changed and asking questions and although my my dad didn't necessarily know the answers we would go and find out the answers together and we would try and figure out um, how the world worked and that was really where my love and passion for astronomy and the rest of science came from so back to the comet, I didn't see Halley's Comet, but 10 years later, I got such a, an interest in, uh, in and a love for astronomy just by looking at the stars with my dad that I got this amazing opportunity to see a comet that just came out of nowhere. So Halley's Comet comes every 76 years. We see it. It's a huge sort of rock flying around the sun in a highly elliptical orbit, so a nice egg-shaped orbit. It goes really far away from the sun, and it comes right in and starts getting hot, and the ices and gases start evaporating. Uh, the ices evaporate into gas, or they sub sublime um, straight into gases, and they create this amazing long tail behind the, the rock. So that's how the comet works. It gets hot when it's near the sun. Um, the word comet actually comes from the Greek, kometes, which means hairy. So it's like a hairy star. So, so that's, what, that's how they thought of it, like whoosh, that's kind of a dog with its ears flapping out of a car window. So that's how they imagined the comets, but now we know we've, we've been to them with spacecraft. We know what they're made of, and we can see them. So this comet came along, Hayakutaki, it's called in uh, 1996 and it was really just one of the the best selfies you could get as a young person looking at the night sky so 
this comet came along and um, I decided astronomy was for me. Now, I didn't, <clears throat> I didn't go to school after the age of 11 because basically schools were full of um, <clears throat> gender divides that kind of weren't cool. So I got to 11 years old, I'd been to primary school and I became aware that um, the secondary school that I would have gone to had I just gone to my local school wouldn't let girls wear trousers and they wouldn't let girls do woodwork and machinery and they had all these weird divides which you know is absolutely nonsense but the, the girls and boys had to play different sports so all these kind of things were <clears throat> affecting the way that I saw my future so instead of going to school I taught myself at home so I actually just was organically kind of raised, like raised by wolves, if you will, um, <laughs> and was in charge of my own education from the age of 11. So I learned to experiment and I learned to question, and that was a really important fundamental part of what has built me as a scientist. And I think that's important to, to consider as we educate our children, what are we teaching them and what is being taught out of them, the ability to learn, the ability to be themselves. And that's been important for me. So I followed my passion. I loved astronomy. I loved um, physics. And I, I studied those at university. I ended up doing my PhD at a place called Jodrell Bank Observatory, which is it's not a bank. Some people said, you did your PhD in a bank? No. It's actually a giant telescope like this uh, near Manchester in England. Um, so I started doing radio astronomy just because Essentially, that was the place I wanted to go, this gigantic, iconic telescope, this enormous dish that was looking up at the night sky, it was looking up at the universe, <clears throat> and it was a place that I wanted to be. So radio astronomy, what is it? People often think of radio, which is sound, and they associate that with music or, or sound, but it's not. It's, it's a part of the electromagnetic spectrum, radio. It's just, just light, but longer wavelengths. So stuff we can't see from the universe is being kind of beamed towards us at all times. We, we, we can't see it, but it's coming from stars and galaxies. Uh, and we use these enormous ears to actually listen to the universe in radio waves. We also do that with X-rays and gamma rays and other types of rays uh, and light as well. But each of those colors as parts of the electromagnetic spectrum teaches us something different. So I want to show you now a picture of what you would see if you had radio eyes or if you point these radio telescopes at the sky what would you actually see so it kind of looks like a starry sky doesn't it but they're not stars none of those things are stars you can't see really any stars when you look with a radio telescope so if you look up with your eyes obviously you see stars in the night sky what you see when you look with a radio telescope is you see huge energetic galaxies with supermassive black holes at the centers with hot gas swirling inexorably to their death and doom um, and you see also exploding stars and you see amazing regions of gas that are very very cold but are forming new stars so you th see things essentially that you wouldn't see with the other types of telescopes so that's why we use radio telescopes because we see all these different objects and when we build telescopes, we are building time machines. And that's a bit of a flippant <laughs> remark, but it's actually true. We can't go forward in time, <clears throat> but we can look back in time. We can literally t take pictures that show us and build up the history book of our universe. So how do we do that? Well, it's because of the speed of light. So light travels incredibly fast, 300,000 kilometers per second. Um, so it would go around the Earth about eight times in a second. Um, so that's its speed in a vacuum. When light comes to us from the sun, it takes millions of years for the light to get from the middle of the sun to the outside of the sun because it keeps hitting things and getting absorbed or re-emitted. But once it gets to the surface of the sun after millions of years, then traveling from the surface of the sun to us, to our eyes, takes eight minutes. So the eight, eight minute rule for the sun, if it switched off, we wouldn't know for a few minutes. What would you do in those minutes? <laughs> now if you go further, not just the sun or our solar system, but to the nearest galaxy, 
the Andromeda galaxy, the nearest big galaxy. That is two million years of time travel time for light to get from there to here. So when we look at the sun, we're seeing as it was eight minutes ago. When we look at the nearest galaxy, we see it as it was two million years ago. Because the light has taken that long, it's encoding. It's like a fossil relic of what that thing used to look like. And that's traveling to us, that signal. So when we build telescopes, when we build telescopes that help us to see further and further into the universe, they help us to see back further and further through time. So we're essentially like paleontologists or fossil hunters or people who dig through the record and find different um, elements or different chemical balances from the history of our Earth. We're doing this with the universe. So as we zoom through our universe with our telescopes, we are looking back in time, millions or even billions of years, which is really cool. So I've actually made pictures of things myself that are billions of years old. And you're actually seeing something that happened before there was life on Earth or before the Earth even existed. And that's pretty incredible. We can do that routinely. So as astronomers, we try and build bigger telescopes for that reason, to, to peel back the, the layers of history of our universe. And one of the biggest telescopes that we're trying to build at the moment is the Square Kilometre Array. I'll tell you what it means in a second, but it's a global project of more than 10 countries getting together and saying, we need to build a bigger telescope. We can't do it alone. We need to use all of our landmass, firstly. We need all our ingenuity, um, and we need to cooperate because guess what? The stars are different in the northern and southern hemispheres, uh, so the Brits can uh, see all the good stuff. That's why we come here, see the beautiful southern skies. Um, so... A lot of countries involved, from, from China to uh, European countries, Canada, um, none in South America at the moment, uh, but we have South Africa as well as a partner and, and Australia. So this is a huge project to build a telescope made up of tens or hundreds of thousands of smaller telescopes, so they work as a team. And we do that because essentially you get the equivalent if you build thousands of small telescopes of one enormous telescope that is almost as big as the Earth. So we're building, <laughs> this is going well, we're building um, this enormous, enormous capability. Now it's called the Square Kilometre Array, ignore the screen, the, the Square Kilometre Array, there we go. Um, the square, it's called the Square Kilometre Array because um, it's, not a, it's, it's not a square and it's not a kilometre in size, it's actually all the dishes together, all these radio telescopes will cover a whole surface area, if you added them up, of a square kilometre, which is a million square metres. So that's the idea of the name. But actually, it's, it's evolved since then, and the design has evolved beyond that. But essentially, we've got two different fields of telescopes, one in South Africa, um, made up of 250 giant dishes, and one in Australia, in WA, made up of about 130, 140,000 individual radio antennas that look like kind of the things that you have on your roof to pick up TV signals. That's pretty much what we're talking about. And these are sensitive to radio waves from space. So they, all the radio waves are always coming to the Earth, whether or not we look at them. But when we cover huge areas with these telescopes, we can pick those up, we can amplify them, and we can make literal pictures of the invisible universe and those interesting things that we're trying to find out. So the science drivers for this project are enormous. These are literally all the questions about where we come from and where we're going and how everything in the universe works. There are questions about the fundamental nature of the force of gravity. If that doesn't sound exciting, maybe you're not a physicist, but it, it is important because it's really understanding the, you know, the fundamental nature of whether it's particle physics or classical physics or um, general relativity. However you look at gravity, we can't marry our understandings of gravity with quantum mechanics and the other understandings of the forces of nature. So we're trying to do that by testing in very extreme environments how gravity works, which is very interesting. We're also trying to figure out whether, how life began in the universe and whether we're alone in the universe. So if you took the Square Kilometre Array telescope and you put it on another planet nearby, not in our solar system, but just a little bit further, and you put it um, 
and the solar system about 10 light years away, and you pointed that telescope back towards the Earth, you'd be able to see us. Not see us physically, because it's a radio telescope, not making physical pictures of us scurrying around in our lives, but you'd be able to hear or see the radio waves that we create. So our TV signals, our airport radars, you know those funny golf ball looking things at, at airports, they've got little dishes inside. That's just a cover to um, keep the weather off, but those things spin around and they create a beam of radio waves that go into the sky and they can, they can talk to the, the aeroplanes. Those things are very powerful. And you'd be able to hear them or see them on other planets using our telescope. So literally, if we build this, when we build this in five years or so, and we switch it on, if there are aliens out there using airport radars within 10 light years, we'll see them. It's not very likely, but it's absolutely possible. What else are we looking at? We're looking at the cosmic dawn. It's a lovely, evocative name, isn't it, for a project. The very first stars and galaxies that ever existed. So if you've ever managed to avoid the Big Bang Theory, that TV show, well done. Um, but if you haven't, you'll, you'll be aware that the whole universe was in a hot, dense state. <laughs> and it started expanding and expanding. And that, that's how the universe began. We can see the universe is still expanding right now today, and, and it's actually getting far, faster and faster, this expansion. So early on in the universe, everything was closer together and closer together, and, and by sort of logical uh, consideration of how that must have kept going back in time, there was this point at which everything was in the same place. That's called the Big Bang, the singularity, where everything was at a single point. We don't know why, we don't know how, but that seems to be the case. Now, what that means is that when you go back to the cosmic dawn, this is when the first stars and galaxies started to form. So the, the hot, dense state was kind of when there was just things whizzing around, energy and particles. And there's no forms, there's no um, even atoms, there's no molecules, there's no planets, there's no tables, there's no people. There's nothing. It's just particles and energy whizzing around. And then it starts expanding, gets cooler. When things expand, they get cooler. That's how a fridge works. Um, and they... Um, the particles start sort of dropping together and going, oh, we've got forces that are kind of making us go together and it's not so crazy here, so we'll, we'll start sort of forming atoms and then we'll start forming molecules. And, and then the universe was full of gas and it was just kind of a fog. There was no stars and galaxies. And then it kept expanding and cooled and then gravity started going, okay, I can start to build by pulling stuff together, build stars and, and galaxies and black holes. And at that point, about 13 point something billion years ago, we don't know quite what, um, the first stars and galaxies formed, and they started burning a hole in that fog. So when we look back to the beginning of time with our telescopes, and that's quite, quite dramatic, but we do, we look back to the beginning of time, we would just see a fog. And then we haven't done it yet because we haven't got a telescope powerful enough, but that's what we're trying to build. When the first stars get hot, they burn a hole in that fog kind of like headlights through a fog. And then we start to see a signal of the cosmic dawn, the first stars burning holes in this fog. That's what we're looking for. We're looking at cosmic magnetism. There are lots of forces of nature. Gravity is one. There are strong and weak nuclear forces. There's, there's magnetism, electromagnetism. That's all the light and all that stuff. Um, and cosmic magnetism as well, magnetic fields in space, they actually shape things. I've studied this for a number of years and done research on the way that, you know, the Earth is a magnet. It creates a magnetic field because it's got iron in the middle and it spins around. And that's a dynamo. If you're over 35, you probably know what a dynamo is from your bike. <laughs> we didn't have those battery-charged ones. But um, so a, a spinning metal creates a magnetic field. Um, so certain types of metal. Um, and the Earth is a magnet, and the sun is a magnet. We can see the sunspots, we can see the solar flares, we see the effect of that when parts of the sun spew out and they fly towards the Earth and they fly into our atmosphere and cause the aurora, the, the southern lights. That's a beautiful thing. And then galaxies are spinning around, and they're magnets too. So galaxies have a whole... Galaxies are like, our galaxy is a spinning disk of 200 billion stars, and it has this amazing magnetic field. It's incredible. 
Um, so that's, that's another thing that we're looking at, the effects of magnetism on our universe and how it helps to create stable galaxies and create stable stars. So what's happening right now? So we haven't built the square kilometre array yet. We've got an international treaty that's just been signed. So all the countries have agreed to put money together and do this. But we have started, about 10 years ago, we started actually building stuff and doing stuff. So South Africa is a, a major partner and will host 200 enormous radio dishes. So they've already built uh, an observatory in the Karoo, which is a region um, sort of in the middle left a bit um, in South Africa, to use its technical term. Um, They've built this incredible array of 64 big radio dishes, and they've been doing science with that. And they've been building up a capability in Africa that hasn't existed um, in, that, in that way, uh, in, a, in a really concerted effort to boost capability of homegrown talent by recruiting some overseas experts, but trying to boost the number of studentships, the number of postdocs, um, and to get faculty from... South Africa and other African countries. So that's been really positive. And they've got some great results. In Western Australia, we're hosting an enormous amount of infrastructure. And that, 10 years ago, was built on a place with no infrastructure whatsoever, no human-built infrastructure. So um, one of the first things that was built was this, the, the Murchison Wide Field Array. So it's a radio telescope not made of the dishes, you use those when you're doing certain types of science. And when you, you want to do other types of science, you use these kind of weird antenna things. Now, they really work in the same way, but you just don't need the dish because you're looking at longer wavelengths. Um, so actually, you're looking basically at the whole sky. You don't need the dish to tell you which direction you're looking at and sort of point in that direction or that direction. These ones just look everywhere all at once, which can be really useful. So this Murchison Wide Field Array is not just what you can see here. There's actually 128 of these tiles of little spider robots, and these are radio telescopes tuned into the signals from the universe. And the picture of the, the night sky you can see above is actually a real image from that telescope showing the Milky Way. You see that strip across? That's a side-on view of our own galaxy and all the hot gas in our galaxy. And those little bubbles there, see the little circles in the Milky Way? They're stars that have exploded and all their guts are spewing out into space. The hot gas from stars that exploded thousands to millions of years ago are still expanding into space. And they radiate radio waves. They emit in the frequencies that we can measure. This thing over here... This is called Centaurus A. It's a very, very nearby radio galaxy. Now, what's a radio galaxy? It's a galaxy we can see in radio waves, simple as that. And we can see it in radio waves because it has the conditions, i.e. a really hot, supermassive black hole. Uh, the black hole itself isn't hot. The gas around it that's falling in and the stars are being kind of ripped apart and are falling into the black hole, those stars... Um, and the material in the gas is, is swirling around the black hole in a kind of a, a waiting room, waiting to die. And that hot gas emits radio waves, and we can see that, um, and it's, it's really quite spectacular. And this one, this is my baby. For, so for the last um, about nine or ten years, I've, I worked um, until recently on this project, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, um, so this is the observatory in Western Australia, the Murchison Radio Observatory, and this is what it looks like today. Ten years ago, there was no infrastructure whatsoever. We've built 36 huge radio dishes, each 12 metres across, three or four storeys high. Um, they work in concert. They all look at the same object in the sky at once. You take all the data onto a special camera, which is especially designed for radio waves, and it looks at a huge area of the sky all at once, so you can get pictures of large objects, which is great. All the data streams through into this custom-built um, computing center on site. So these are fiber optic cables, and the computing um, reduces the data down to a manageable level, which is sent to Perth through fiber optic cables into the Pawsey supercomputing center in Perth. This guy kind of opens the door. That's his job. <laughs> <coughs> This is called Magnus, this supercomputer, and uh, I use it all the time, actually. Um, you just log in from your laptop, and you just have an account, 
and you log in, you use kind of command prompts, and you say, could you please make a picture of this galaxy? and go, and the supercomputer goes away and thinks about it, because there's lots of people around the country trying to use the supercomputer. Um, but you're allocated a particular uh, amount of resource um, by a competitive process. And um, I was head of a process, for a proposal for about one or one and a half million CPU hours. Uh, and so you get to the front of the queue, and then it does the thing for you. And then um, it makes a picture. Most of the time, it might say I've made a mistake. <laughs> it's very hard to make pictures in radio waves. It's a very tricky thing to do. But you try again and you try again. And then you make the optimal picture of what you're trying to get. So what are some of the cool things we've discovered, even with these Pathfinder telescopes, before this huge square kilometre array is even built in the next decade? This is a really cool picture. Um, and it was made by a team from... ANU, the Australian National University, and Naomi McClure-Griffiths um, is a professor there who led this work. It's a picture of, what, what do you reckon it is? Supernova? No, it looks like one, but that's a good guess. No, looks like a bushfire, doesn't it? It's terrifying. We choose colour schemes that make it look dramatic. Ooh. But this is actually cold gas at nearly zero degrees, like minus 270 degrees. So zero degrees Kelvin, almost. It's very cold. Um, it's actually gas in what's called the Magellanic Clouds. Who's heard of the Magellanic Clouds? Yeah, you might have seen them if you've been camping or you live somewhere nice and dark. Um, and it's actually hydrogen gas. Hydrogen gas is all over the universe. It's like 90%, 98% of the universe is just hydrogen gas sitting there just doing nothing, not part of a star, not pulling its weight. There's leaners and lifters in this universe, and this is a leaner hydrogen gas, but it creates everything, and everything we are made of essentially started that way. So this is hydrogen gas. You can see the beautiful structures. You can do a data cube with velocity, and you can fly through and see how fast it's rotating and how it's clumping together and all sorts of things. Um, so this is what the Magellanic Clouds look like if you look in the sky. So this is the Milky Way, beautiful, and the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud. And what these are are like two small galaxies that are actually orbiting around in the local group of galaxies. So they're kind of captured with the Milky Way and other nearby galaxies in our gravitational dance. So they have about a billion times the mass of our sun, so quite small. We're 200 billion times in the Milky Way, so 200 and that's one. So that's the kind of scale we're talking about. So really you're in a kind of a captured orbit with these galaxies. And recently we discovered um, that there's actually all this hydrogen gas linking our galaxy and the Magellanic Clouds. So there's, there's actually trails as these orbit around our galaxy and around the local group. Gas kind of falls off the back. It's like you haven't secured your load and there's this kind of soil all over the road. And that's, that's how our universe works. Now, the telescope in South Africa has done some great work looking at the middle of our Milky Way. And this is a real picture taken with the Meerkat telescope. I love the name Meerkat. Um, and this is a radio telescope in South Africa as the kind of practice run for the square kilometre array. And this is the middle of our, our galaxy, the Milky Way, um, in radio waves. And you can see a lot of these supernova remnants where a, a star has exploded. So you can kind of see the guts of the star. Some of them are regions of ionised gas around a star. And then you can see this amazing kind of bright bit here, and that's where the supermassive black hole at the middle of our galaxy is. There's a really big, well, it's not that big, actually. It's only four million times the mass of our sun, which is quite small relative to some supermassive black holes. Modest, you could say. But it's got filaments coming off it. You see these weird lines. And they're not a mistake. They've been seen before. And we think there's something to do with magnetic fields. So we think the, the black hole has, the centre of our galaxy has heightened magnetic fields. It's got a, a lot of hot gas that's very, very, um, I guess it's turned into a plasma. So it's, the atoms are broken up, so you have electrical charges swirling around. Sound familiar, like the dynamo, you get magnetic fields. So we see these kind of filaments of hot gas going along magnetic field lines.
really fascinating. We see things that we don't know what they are. We see mysterious things called fast radio bursts. These were discovered about 10 years ago. And now we're finding, in some days, sometimes two or three in a day now. Because we've just got stronger telescopes, telescopes with greater capability. And these objects are very, very far away. They're extremely bright and powerful. Extremely bright and powerful. Unimaginably so. And they only last less than a millisecond. So they're, they're ejecting huge amounts of energy from distant galaxies um, over a tiny, tiny fraction of a second. And the red light gets to us after the blue light does. So by measuring the dispersion of the scatter, or the difference between the different colors of light and how long they take to get to us, we can figure out how far away it is. Because that dispersion is caused by the stuff between us and the object. Things like plasma, things like um, you know, broken up atoms, particles in space. And the more particles there are, the more the dispersion happens. So the more the difference between the red and the blue light gets. So we can actually use that to measure approximately how far away these things are. And they are very, very far away in extremely distant parts of the universe. So this will help us, when we figure out what they are, to really measure uh, a lot about our universe and what's in the interim, but also what these explosions are. Some of the ideas are things like neutron stars colliding or neutron stars and black holes um, interacting, some of the most energetic things in the universe which cause gravitational waves. And we, recently we've had a, a huge surge in the number of gravitational wave detections um, because the LIGO telescope in, in America is, is up and running. Um, there are other elements to LIGO now in Italy and um, in India, and those will be growing. So we've got more and more evidence of gravitational waves caused by um, things like neutron stars, which are tiny, dense, massive stars that are only about the size of Brisbane. About 10 kilometers across. They're spinning really, really fast um, and they have a huge gravitational impact. So, when two of them are in a close orbit, that really uh, affects space and time around them because mass affects space and time. It's quite amazing, but Einstein figured this out over 100 years ago. Mass affects the very fabric of our universe and causes these ripples. So these ripples aren't flowing through the universe. They are the universe. And it's quite remarkable to watch the signals come in. If you follow LIGO on Twitter, pretty much every week you've got two or three new detections of gravitational waves and what they think has caused them, whether it's black holes colliding or neutron stars getting very, very close and kissing and becoming this enormous ejection of ripples through our universe. A project that I've done with the new telescope is um, actually weighing supermassive black holes. So you can do this quite easily. Um, and you just stare at a galaxy. And um, this is actually a couple of galaxies that are colliding. And that happens quite frequently in our universe because gravity pulls them together. Uh, and, and they're supermassive black holes at the middles of galaxies are very, very massive. They can be billions of times the mass of our sun, billions of times. So when the new telescope was turned on, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, um, I did a project where I stared at a, a very distant black hole that had gas rotating around it. So stars kind of get sucked towards the black hole, and gas does, due to gravity. And the stars break apart, become stretched and warped. That forms this enormous stream of gas around it. But also other gas from more distant is sort of orbiting around the galaxy as well. So you can measure the velocity of that gas by looking at the spectrum of the gas. Hydrogen or hydroxyl or methanol or different chemicals emit at different frequencies, very specific frequencies. So by looking at how that frequency is shifted by the motion of the material, we can see how fast it's moving. And that's how we do it. So we actually measure the rotation of the gas around the black hole. That tells you how massive the black hole is, simple high school physics equation. So that's pr a pretty cool experiment that I did recently and found the mass of a black hole, which was billions of times the mass of our sun. Absolutely incredible. So what's next? I'll stand out in the outback next to a cross. I wasn't looking for treasure. This is the middle of the square kilometer array in WA where it's going to be. This is a surveyor's mark. So they've done all the GPS and the surveying, and they've decided where the middle is going to be. 
And the square kilometre array is going to be built over the next five, ten years, maybe a bit longer as it's built out. Uh, and the site in Australia is this remote site. And I'm uh, very excited to be right at the middle there. Um, and in a few years, there will be probably 40 to 60 kilometres of Western Australia covered in these clusters of antennas, which will be the Square Kilometre Array Telescope in Australia. So 140-ish thousand of these antennas put in clusters so you can um, essentially form a little a station, a uh, substation of all these, these telescopes working together collaboratively. And then you get the signal from this one and combine it with the signal from that one and that one and that one, and off they go into the distance. The reason why you want a lot of stations, 140,000 or so, is to get um, the fainter signals, to see the faint signals from distant space. The reason why you want a big size is to see fine detail, so that you can actually make pictures of objects and not just see a blurry mass. So it's really simulating a giant telescope 60 kilometres across, but also we do this on a global scale. Um, when we use telescope spread right across different continents. In South Africa, they're building about 200 of these dishes, and that will be spread across the Karoo region. Uh, and these will be used to do different types of science. This, the Australian ones will look more at the distant universe um, and uh, low-frequency radio waves, which tells you different stuff from what the dishes will, will show you. Um, so it's really a complementary project. And the data challenge is enormous. So when I showed you that little video of um, the telescope that we have at the moment, I showed you the fiber optic cables. And there are just hundreds of thousands of kilometers of those cables bringing the signals from each telescope into one place, into a huge computer. And that's the brain of the telescope. So what you measure with the telescope is a voltage. It's not a picture, because they're radio waves, right? We've got radio waves. Um, coming from space. We have radio waves coming from space. They hit the dish, right? If it's a dish telescope, they bounce off. It's just metal. It just bounces off like a mirror. And then they go into the middle where there's this special radio receiver. That's essentially a, a conducting material. And when an electromagnetic wave, like a radio wave, comes in and it interacts with the metal, it causes a, a current or a voltage in that. So that's essentially you're measuring a voltage. And that tells you the direction and the, the, the strength of the radio wave. When you add them all up, you get a picture. And that's what the brain is for. That's what the computer brain is for. So currently, we have about 72 trillion bits per second, terabits per second, of data coming from that telescope through those little yellow cables into a supercomputer. And we make pictures. So you compress that down massively, because you can't deal with all the data. So you have to average and uh, filter and all this stuff. And you get about 80 petabytes a year archived data, so actual pictures of the sky. By 2025, they're saying about an exabyte a year. I mean, this is, looks old-fashioned, but 250 million DVDs per year. That's, you know, it's worse than my dad's collection, you know. So we actually need to teach computers how to be astronomers now, because there aren't enough grad students in the world to look through all these data. And we are not good at automatically making pictures of the sky. There's a lot of human interaction involved. There's a lot of human thought, and humans are very good at thinking and modifying and adapting and trialing how to make the pictures better. Um, because we're not just point and click. We're not just taking a photo. We have to do a lot of mathematical um, analysis, and we have to use computers in a way that's, that's quite advanced to make these pictures. So machine learning is going to be increasingly important, and there are already a number of projects going on to teach computers to be astronomers. But they're very basic at the moment, uh, and we're not doing as well as perhaps we will need to to ramp up to this project. So this is a huge grand challenge for um, not only astronomy, but for many sciences, teaching computers to be scientists. They're not very good ones at the moment. So what careers will be for the young people of today, just with the SKA project in mind? Well, we need astronomers, um, although not as many as you might think. Um, we need engineers, people who can build stuff, people who can design and conceive of new technologies uh, and actually fix things too, and think of better uses of resources. 
We need people for education and outreach because this is a very important way to sustain um, what we do as, as scientists and STEM practitioners. A huge amount of resources got to go into data science, uh, data transport and storage and high performance computing and the design of software to actually make us do this in real time. When we take a picture of the sky, we essentially go for 12 hours and we watch the sky go across and then we take into account that and we take up all the data and add it up together and then we do loads of analysis and that whole thing takes weeks and weeks until we get a picture. That's how we've worked for decades now, and it's not good enough. We're going to have to have a computer that takes 72 trillion bits per second of information and automatically pipelines it through and makes pictures in real time. That does not exist yet. Some people will argue with me that there are basic pipelines, but they're, they're not fit for purpose yet. So we need people who can deal with big data, as people used to say, um, software, data mining, looking back through data to see if things changed, see if there are explosions. Um, as we upgrade our software, we can actually find things in old data that we didn't see at the time. Um, so we need so many more people with those skills. So I also wanted to touch very briefly on the Australian Space Agency because we had our first advisory group meeting yesterday in Canberra. It was very exciting. And this is another area of growth for STEM education and careers, hopefully. So currently, the Australian space industries, there are more than 100, 120, that, that sort of order, space startups in Australia, doing things from building CubeSats, uh, small satellites, to launching rockets, to, to running um, you know, R&D projects, uh, robotics, all those sorts of things. Um, so development of those um, things empl employ about 10,000 people at the moment. And the government and the agency's goal is to um, increase that to about 20,000 jobs um, and to get this industry really to have a pipeline from domestic talent uh, as well. So there's a lot of areas that are very interesting to do with space. We're not talking necessarily about sending astronauts up yet, although that's not out of the question. We're really looking at things that Australia is very good at already and things like robotics and automation. So one of the things we lead at in the world is the automated mines in WA. People from around the world are absolutely amazed that there's whole railway lines for thousands of kilometres and there's huge mine trucks and other technologies in mines that are being operated remotely from, um, from Perth. And that sort of thing could be transferred very easily to exploring our solar system and to doing things safely and autonomously in space. So there's lots of different ways in which we're trying to um, develop the opportunity for people to have jobs in these areas. So the workforce um, in Australia, a lot of the engineers that we have um, are imported. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. I'm imported, um, and it's good to have the. It's good. It's good to have that. You know, interchange of exchange internationally of, of quality people um, who have the skills and the attributes that we need in our economy. But if we don't grow the talents that we need in this country, then that I think is a mistake um, as well. So. The workplace is changing, and this is from the Women in STEM Decadal Plan. You can, you can read that um, on the Australian Academy of Science website. Um, but the, the highlights are that in the future, 50% of workers will need to know how to use and build and configure digital systems. Um, there will be a lot of automation, so there are now training courses in automation. There's going to be VET certificates in automation. Um, so that people aren't just losing their jobs to automation, people become experts in automation. Um, so it's not necessarily job loss, but job replacement in some cases. But 18% of workers have a serious chance of losing their current job because of technology. So there's a lot of international studies around this. Um, and the fastest growing occupations are in STEM-skilled jobs. So we're not actually developing that pipeline of, of STEM-qualified people in Australia. We've got skills shortages um, in a lot of areas of um, engineering in particular, in IT. Uh, and this will be a problem as these, uh, as we have a kind of an exponential growth in these areas. Um, the other problem is, is really to do with um, participation. It's very skewed in terms of gender. So the majority of people doing science degrees 
um, are actually female when you take into account um, biological sciences, health and medical sciences. But when you look at technology, and we're having a great run with technology today, um, we just don't have the women in IT and engineering. Um, the numbers are less than 10% of graduates um, coming out of vet courses and universities um, who are female. So we've got this huge kind of separation between the types of subjects that girls are going into and, and that boys are going into in, in school and year 12. And we don't have... Um, in year 12 subject enrolments, we're looking at engineering less than 10% female and in computing less than 20%, um, whereas in biology, women are in the majority. So if we switch just 1% of our workforce to STEM jobs, we would add about five, uh, 59 billion to our GDP. So there's a, there's a big economic imperative here. Um, so it's not that there is a, a pie and someone has to win and someone has to lose. We need to grow that pie. Um, and we do need to make sure that we have this workforce that's skilled to do the jobs that will exist in their lifetimes, young people. So I became the Australian Government's Women in STEM Ambassador in December. I'd just previously been doing astrophysics and lots of um, outreach, um, which is you know, something I think is important in terms of... Um, in terms of getting the next generation of scientists um, into a position that they know what jobs are available, they know what they have to do to get those jobs. But my particular role now is to work on a national level to encourage organisations to look at their practices, um, to get people working together and collaborating, and to get educators and the education system in a shape that is doing better. Um, so that we're driving gender equity in STEM across the nation. So one of the first things I did was on the expert working group for the Women in STEM Decadal Plan. So it's a 10-year plan, decadal, decade. And it's really for the nation to map out what we need to do, where the problems are, where the areas in which we're not doing so well are and the sticking points that prevent girls going into STEM education that are roadblocks for women in their career progression and retention, um, and then figuring out how to, to do something about that. So you, you can't see this very well, but it's a nice sort of London underground kind of map of, um, a bit biased there, um, of the career progression uh, of women in STEM. And at different levels, so we have like primary and secondary schooling here, the different I guess barriers to progression that exist, um, and a lot of them are common throughout their careers. So we have then tertiary education, and we have early career, mid-career, and senior career. And there are different, this is available, again, in the Women in STEM Decadal Plan at science.org.au, Women in STEM Plan. So it's worth having a look at that document, and, and it's really good if you're interrogating your own piece of this ecosystem and saying, what can I do in my organisation or what can I do in my everyday life to, to try and address these problems, um, you can see what some of the barriers are. And this is based on a huge number of research papers that were um, read and digested and incorporated into this work. So it's all research-based work um, based on an international research context. I wanted to give you a couple of examples of where, where barriers can come in that are quite surprising to some and not surprising at all to others. I, I talk often to uh, teachers, primary teachers, um, early childhood educators, and, and they, there are gasps of surprise here. And there'll probably be no gasps of surprise from many of you. But, um, you know, research exists about a, a lot of bias in, in our world. So in research commissioned by the Israeli National Bureau of Economic Research, they got grade six exam papers. So, so primary school kids. They did a maths exam. They grabbed at random half of the maths exams, put them over here, half put them over there, and they marked these as normal. So the teacher of the class marked those exam um, exams there. Then they got the other half and they took them away to external examiner and they removed the names from the papers. Now this group here graded as normal. The boys performed better than the girls in maths. The ones they took over here redacted the names um, and was assessed anonymously by someone who'd never met the children. 
um, the girls perform better than the boys. So this has been done a million times and research has been done on orchestras and auditions behind a curtain and a huge shift in, in um, the results. So anonymizing decision-making can make a huge difference um, to the outcome in certain situations. There's a difference as well in the way that classes interact with teachers or educators. So um, these two educators who are also researchers did an experiment by videoing their own STEM class. So they were experts, they thought they were pretty cool teachers. And they looked back at their video and, and analyzed their interactions with the students. And you can see, have a read through some of those differences between the interactions with the young men and the young women in their class. One of the biggest ones for me, the number, the ratio of interactions with girls and boys in the class, seven to three, male to female, girls were less likely to receive a, t a question from the teacher and less frequently to receive a follow-up. Boys were more likely to be called to the front to do science demos. Boys were allowed to call out and demand attention and were allowed to speak over the girls and they were often grabbing an activity and doing it for her. Um, and even the teachers did that. And girls were more likely to be praised for the neatness or the appearance of their work and then given the role of recording or writing down what the team had done. So there was a huge segregation unintentionally in the way that boys and girls were treated in classrooms and there's a number, large number of studies on this. Also textbooks and resource materials and the decoration of the class was much likely, much more likely to encourage the young men to progress and feel that they belonged in STEM than, than girls. So when we look at education there are so many examples of this and I do a lot of work with educators um, trying to change attitudes and build awareness of these issues. Um, men and women hold these biases and behaviours. It's not a man or a woman problem. It's actually our system problem. Uh, and the way that we do this um, is, is pretty uniform. In workplaces too. So it's not just the pipeline of getting people into STEM. It's keeping them, retaining them, building their momentum of their careers. And getting over the barrier that women do huge number of hours additional unpaid work than men on average. So that is a time penalty which is built into the conditions and the, the conditions of merit that are defined which help to progress people's careers. So I recently, uh, last week actually, I was in Sydney, Sydney to, launch, to help launch the Male Champions of Change um, latest report. Um, so this was done by um, Accenture the um, consulting company with male champions of change. And these are senior male leaders who were taken through um, several year long process of um, learning. And um, they actually look at their organizations, their, their practices, and they change those and they do experiments and they, they publish their results and they see if they can make their workplaces better and more equitable. So this research um, showed that there were more significantly more barriers for women in uh, careers in STEM. Um, a lot of problems were to do with lack of diversity and senior leadership. Um, so even in areas where women dominate in general, um, there are very few, few senior leaders who are female. Um, a lot of women feel that there's a barrier with lack of opportunities for promotion and pathway to leadership and the lack of vis visible role models. There's also um, bullying, sexual harassment, um, which is a big uh, problem with women having their voices devalued and, and being experiencing um, sexual harassment in work. So a lot of these issues, they're well known, they're well researched, but um, you know, there's a real need now for action and a real appetite for action. So Male Champions of Change, I think, is a great organization because it brings together those really senior and uh, very, I guess, powerful male leaders who have a real nuanced understanding of these issues and are driving that change throughout their organizations. And these are major companies and organizations like CSIRO, for example, and ANSTO. So what am I doing as Women in STEM Ambassador? Well, I do a lot of this kind of thing, talking to people and getting an idea of the issues um, in different places. So 
different workplaces have very different issues. Um, it's educating people, educating educators, um, and we have some money for a national awareness raising initiative for girls to pursue STEM study and careers. It's not just um, a problem with workplaces. There is a pipeline problem, although people say um, it's one or the other. You, you really need to balance the two. Not enough girls are studying um, STEM, STEM at year 12. So we've really got to change the perception, the damaging perceptions that are shown in research are that that um, STEM professionals are, are men, they're loners, they're geeky, uh, and they're socially awkward. And although that may be true in some cases, uh, the, the reality is actually that's not. There are women working in industries all over the world in STEM jobs, in, in research, um, and in various roles trying to change the world for the better. And young girls can actually um, aspire to that. But we have to connect the classroom um, activities and the classroom experience of STEM with the real world, and there is clearly a disconnect there. There is too many teachers teaching out of field. Um, there is a lack of um, development. Professional learning um, that encourages the collaborative pedagogy that is essential for engaging all young people in STEM and understanding as well um, why we're doing it. So who was taught Pythagoras and thought, why are we doing this at the time? Maybe you know now, maybe you don't, but it really, there was no link between what we're doing and why we're learning it and, and how it applies in the real world. So that is a real barrier to gender equity. Helping teachers reduce biases in the classroom, that's just through education as well. We want to drive changes to workplace culture. There's the great thing, the Athena Swan Charter, Science in Australia, Gender Equity, the QUT has a a bronze award for um, Athena Swan, um, which is fantastic. It's a, a scheme, if you don't know where, you look at your organisation and you analyse uh, areas for improvement and then you implement those and measure and, and share success um, and you get bronze, silver or gold accreditation. This has been a real game changer, um, not only in the astronomy community where I've seen it, where we implemented it even before SAGE, but on a national level now SAGE is is working through lots of universities and research organisations. I'm also doing um, a project I'll tell you a bit more about in a second, but to reduce biases in decision making um, and trying to establish that nationally so that it's just the way we do things um, as opposed to a special project. And um, I'm building a team, so we're, we're, um, we have specialists who are going to run the National Awareness Raising Initiative for girls, so that will look like campaigns on social media, um, in the media um, and television, that sort of thing, posters, um, and then targeted research um, to figure out what we need to be doing to increase equity. And supporting more female STEM role models in the public domain, so getting more women through things like male, um, through the Superstars of STEM program, um, 60 women scientists, technologists, engineers, mathematicians are taking part in Superstars of STEM. They receive really advanced media training and opportunities. Not that we're fixing the women because they're not broken, but everyone needs media training, right? If we're STEM practitioners, people can benefit from those things, and it's giving them the, the experience, um, the mentoring, and the opportunities to do things like TED Talks, to go on television, talk about their research in the radio, in the media, uh, and there have been real um, benefits to this project. And it's doing things like that that increases the number of role models that young people can see who are not the norm. You know, less than 25% of subject matter experts in media articles about STEM in Australia uh, are female. So it's 25%. It's pretty, it's pretty bad. So we need to have a word with the media about that as well, make, make this more normalised. The other great things that are happening through the government that are really useful for, for all of us um, are things like um, the STEM Women Database. So this is the first one that, um, that was launched a few weeks ago. And if you haven't joined up already, more than 1,000 women have joined up in the first few weeks. Um, and it's a place where you can put your details um, as a woman working, self-defined woman working in STEM. Um, and whether you're a researcher or in another role in STEM, um, you can put yourself on there and then be contacted for opportunities like media engagements, uh, speaking at conferences um, and boards and committees and that sort of thing. Hopefully fewer committees. We don't need more committees, do we? Um, so it's really a, a, a place for people who are organising conferences and 
organising boards and that sort of thing to find women subject matter experts in a location that's relevant to them. So it's a really good way to, to, to engage. The other thing is the Girls in STEM Toolkit, the GIST. And this has just been launched by the government just a, a, really a couple of weeks ago again. And it's a fantastic website where it's got information for parents, for teachers, for young people themselves um, about STEM careers. And it's targeted towards um, young women. It's really, really, really good um, database. It's a really good resource. Uh, and I hope that will be used uh, a lot more and we'll, we'll be promoting that a lot more in the future. So, <coughs> for 16 years, the Hubble Space Telescope has been taking data and been asking researchers to send in ideas for the research they'd like to do. So they apply for time on the Hubble Space Telescope, and a committee decides who gets that time and how that's allocated. So they've been doing that for a long time, and every single year for 18 years, I think it was, um, male applicants were far more likely to be given time than female applicants. Well, not far more. It was a, it was a re reasonably small effect year on year, but every single year it was skewed towards men, and cumulatively it was a big effect. So they changed things up, and they removed gender pronouns and names from the applications. This has been done a million times, different places. And guess what? Overnight, there was a 10% swing, and it was nearly 50-50. Okay, so you know, within the errors, it was equitable. And it also affects um, people from cultural uh, minorities as well. So this is a great way, in some circumstances, to reduce cognitive biases, unconscious biases, which we all hold as men and women and everyone else. So we all hold these biases. There'll be subtly different, different biases for each one of us. We can look at what they are on the Harvard Implicit association tests, they're really good to do. So the Harvard um, have these tests you can do and uh, you can see what your biases are. I'm biased um, to think that white men are scientists. That's my bias. Um, I took that test three weeks ago and it's still the same. So they don't change. You can, you can educate yourself, but your biases often remain. So that's the fact. So we want to implement this more in Australia in decision-making processes, in our telescope committees, in our supercomputing committees, in the time allocation of resources and research funding. So we're launching a trial of anonymised review in Australia. So the letters will go out on Monday inviting major organisations, funding organisations and these um, committees to take part in a trial to actually identify areas where their decision-making would be improved by this methodology and then to do it as a research project and figure out the results. Um, so this is, I think, going to be a really good way to catalyse change um, in the decision-making that we do um, around how we allocate our resources. And I hope that um, this will bring some real big changes because sometimes it just takes someone to do something and then that really ripples out. Another thing I've done is I've written a kid's book with a little girl on the front and a wombat and it's called Astrophysics for Bedtime. It's under the stars. And this is just a little project on the side, really, for me. But I love talking to kids, and I love enthusing young people with astrophysics because that's, you know, it's an exciting subject, and it's, it's something that can really capture people, adults and children. Um, so I wanted to mention that, the fact that I've, um, I've just written that. In fact... You are the first people in the history of the world to be able to buy that book because it's not even launched yet. Uh, I will be signing copies later. But it's bedtime stories for adults and children to share. So it's about kids around 6 to 12 years old, primary school. And each one, each story is, is essentially it's non-fiction, so it's factual. It's things like, why is the sky blue? What happens if you fall into a black hole? And why does Jupiter have stripes? And all those kinds of questions that kids ask about space. You'll find some interesting factoids about how meteorites are sometimes made of astronaut poo as well. But I think we need more things, seriously, more things like this in the public domain. We need more documentaries fronted by women. We need, you know, I've done some television myself, but you always see the same international 
famous names and they're always men in these documentaries. So we need more women engaging with the media in a big way. We need more books written by women or with female protagonists and we need more diversity. So this is the kind of thing we're trying to build up. So what's at stake? What, what, what happens if we don't bother and we just go, oh, it's fine, we'll just carry on as we are? Well, about one-fifth of the world's workforce are going to be affected by automation. So this is a disruption we can't ignore. It's absolutely imperative that we ready our young people and ourselves for this disruption. It will happen in our careers, even if we're in the middle of our lives. By 2023, STEM occupations will grow by more than 10% in this country. That's a projection. So can we meet the workforce needs by increasing female participation from 16 17% to something much more reasonable? Because what's at stake is our careers, our participation in the workforce. If women aren't participating in STEM education now, they won't be able to, they'll be locked out of these jobs, these 10% growth in jobs in the STEM domain. And that will affect our economic security. And women's economic security is a very important issue globally, but still in Australia there's a gender pay gap of 23% in STEM and 14% uh, overall on average for full-time work, like for like, full-time work. And also the design of our world. So who designs our world? Women are 17% more likely to be seriously injured or killed in a road traffic accident because of the design of cars. It's been designed with male crash test dummies and male dimensions in mind. Um, artificial intelligence is such a part of our lives now. When you write a text message or when you use Uber or when you do anything, you, you, you're using machine learning algorithms that have been trained and taught with real-life um, data. Cars have voice controls now. They're far more likely to respond to, female, to, to male voices than to female voices because they've been trained using male voices. So we are just not designing our world with women in mind because women are not participating in the design of our world in the, same, um, in the same way. So that's at stake too, the whole design and safety of women in our world. If you do want to contact me, my name is not that unusual, so you can just Google me, or you can email womeninstem at UNSW. So if you want to talk about initiatives, um, you're very welcome um, to, to engage because a lot of what I do is listening and learning. And you can follow on social media, although I'll be launching Women in STEM Ambassador uh, official channels very soon to do more of the outreach to a broader audience. But thank you very much. Cheers. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcast, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at www.qut.edu.au slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.